So now, having said all that, take your Bibles and open them along with me to the book of Romans. Um, I said last week, I say again, you know, if this is, uh, if this is stuff that really has uh, challenged your, uh, your ability to, to uh, sort out, uh, know that you're in good company. Um, it, it, is a, it is a difficult portion of the book of Romans. And as you may know, Romans is probably the theological treatise of the New Testament. Perhaps you've heard this before, but um, um, Galatians is a very similar book to the book of Romans. And what is thought by most scholars is that what Paul did after he kind of shot off the book of Romans, excuse me, the book of Galatians, that when he had more time, uh, he sat down and took the book of Galatians and expanded what he said there into the book of Romans. And that Galatians became the, the foundation of the book of Romans, but he worked out his arguments with far more detail and far more intricacy in the book of Romans than he did in the book of Galatians. Because as you know, the theme of both of those, actually, I wonder if you know what the theme of both of those are, because um, I think you would be tempted to say that the theme is justification by faith. And that would be wrong, because the theme is really not the justification by faith. The theme is the righteousness of God. Um, but one being marred and mangled um, in the area of Galatia, and he uh, shoots off that letter to try to correct it, and then comes back later and uh, tries to work it out in the greatest of detail. I can say, uh, in giving you hopefully a, a little uh, word of hope, um, once we get beyond this parenthesis, which, which is tonight is the last night, Lord willing, we'll spend on it, um, I think things will get easier. But uh, when in this parenthetical statement that began in verse 13 and concludes in verse 17, uh, he is doing some things that are um, kind of tangential to his main thought, and that, that makes it difficult to draw it into the main thought when basically it's a tangent. He's making sure that he is covering all his bases um, as he explains things. So let me read you verses 16 and 17, which will be the uh, subject or the object of our uh, investigation tonight. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned, through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now once again in verse 16, Paul begins with a contrast because, as I've tried to point out, this section of the book of Romans is to do that very thing, is to contrast the, uh, the federal headship of Adam with the federal headship of Jesus Christ, showing that there are some similarities and some dissimilarities. Um, and so, once again, he begins by saying in verse 16 that uh, we are not going to find, in the case of Christ, exactly the same thing that we found in the case of Adam. When Adam represented us, there are some similarities to the representation that Christ, when he represented his people, uh, but they're not, they're not identical. There's going to be some things that, are, that will make them vastly different. And so he mentions a couple of three, and that's what I want to do tonight, is point out the three things that he talks about that are differences in the way um, that Christ represented 
uh, us as, as opposed to the way that Adam represented us. It was interesting to me, however, the, the term that Paul uses to, to use is somewhat of a summary of the work of Christ. It's interesting what he doesn't use. For instance, when he opens up in verse 16 and says, and the gift is not like that which came through the one uh, who sinned. He could have used any number of words. He could, have, he could have said it like this. He could have said, now the work of Christ is not like what you saw in the work of Adam. Or he could have said, the righteousness of God is not like that which you saw in the, in the uh, failure of Adam. Uh, he, could have, he could have done it any number of ways. But he chose to use this term as, as, as almost a summary of everything that Jesus Christ has done and stands for. It is the term, the gift. And if you'll notice in this section, which I, I did really for the first time today, um, the, the term gift or free gift um, is mentioned in verse 15. It is mentioned twice in verse 16. It is mentioned in verse 17. And it is mentioned in verse 18. So in three verses, you have the free gift or the gift mentioned five times. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I for one, and I think you agreed, don't believe that that is there by accident. That is, um, there, is a, there is a reason that Paul is so enchanted with that word. And I think he in, rejoices in um, the fact that, that it's a gift. Now, of course he does, and I, I hope we do as well. But I, I don't know about your experience, and I know that my experience is not normative for anybody else but me. But I know this, that when I first heard the gospel, or that God had, gave me, had given me ears to hear the gospel, uh, the thing that so overcame me um, was the fact that heaven was a free gift. Because can't you see that basically, once you say that, you are in absolute, you're on a collision course with everything else. I was overcome personally with the fact that Jim Kennedy kept saying that heaven was a free gift. When all along I had been taught, maybe not taught, maybe it just kind of seeps into you by some process of osmosis, but I was, I was under the impression that if I was ever going to get anything in this world, it was going to come via my just desserts. That is, I was going to earn it, I was going to work for it, and I was going to uh, put forth enough effort that once I finally got it, it was something that I could say, job well done, son. And the whole culture works like that, guys. Everything that, I mean, um, you put a nickel in and you expect a nickel's worth out. You pay somebody to cut your grass and you expect your $50 worth. Uh, you, you get angry when you get shortchanged because you expect to get what you pay for. And you, you know, a hundred pennies ought to get a hundred pennies worth, you know, and on and on and on we go. We don't like to get ripped off or pay too much. Because we got this stuck in our whole psyche that the way things are is just put something over here in this scale and it will be balanced off over here by this scale. And so when somebody came into my apartment and told me, no, 
God doesn't operate like that. It was, it was absolutely enchanting. And I think you, I, you, I've told you this a dozen times, but that, that text that I always used as a, as a college idiot, um, that I only knew half of the verse, the wages of sin is death, and in the other half you found the word free gift. Paul is enchanted with that free gift too. He mentions it five times in three verses. Swept away by the fact that everything that I get from God comes via a gift, a free gift. Um, I will say to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is kind of my own opinion and somebody might show me how wrong it is, but, but the point is, if you wanted to summarize everything that Christianity is, just use the term, it's a gift. Whereas every other major religion that you and I know about is, is contrary to that. Very frankly, telling people that heaven is a free gift undercuts um, the whole system of mankind. I, I was in a meeting yesterday with the youth staff, and, and one of the questions that was asked me is, would you say that the problem in cults is that they have a wrong view of the Trinity? Well, they certainly do have a wrong view of the Trinity, most of them. And it's either Trinity or Christology, either wrong view of Christ or a wrong view of the Godhead itself. But I wouldn't say that's the fundamental similarity. In my opinion, the fundamental similarity in all cultic behavior is that it's based on the premise that you must earn it. Um, there are some mighty fine upstanding citizens who wear white shirts and ties and travel around on bicycles across the land because the, the better off they do, the more of a, a godly position they're going to have. And I'm telling you, there are 19 terrorists right now separated from God, thinking that what they were doing was going to earn them 71 virgins. Um, it's, it's the fundamental flaw in the thinking of man. We think like this, and God thinks like that. You know, diametrically opposed. We think you, you got to, if you're going to get anything, you're going to keep your nose clean, work hard, you know, play by the rules, and boy, it'll be fine. And I really brought into my 22nd, 22nd year that thought that that's the way that God operated. Um, if you just do this, Jimmy, and, you know, then when it's all over, you'll be rewarded with that which you have earned. And uh, the emphasis of the New Testament. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that before... Before Jim Kennedy came into my, um, my, my apartment that night and told me that heaven was a free gift, I had never even seen that word in the New Testament. And I find that reaction today. I say something about a gift, and they say, gift? gift? What, what do you mean? What's, what, 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 well, here it is five times in three verses. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> interesting how long we can go being in and about religious circles and never snare that word, which is really the essence and the summary of everything uh, that uh, Christianity stands for. But anyway, um, what, he, what his thought is, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. That is, there are some dissimilarities in what Jesus has done and what Adam has done. And I want to mention, I want to point, uh, point you in the direction of three of those. Three things that would make these two pieces of work, Christ's work and Adam's work, different. First of all, uh, the first difference would be in the consequences. 
That is, um, for the judgment came through one offense resulted in condemnation. The result of Adam's work is judgment and condemnation. But, as opposed to the work of Christ, uh, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. You'll notice the word resulted, at least it is in my translation. It's repeated. Adam's work resulted in this. Jesus' work resulted in this. The, the outcome of what Jesus did is this. The outcome of what Adam did is this. And the outcome in one, one sense is judgment and condemnation and the other is, of course, justification. That's a vast, vast difference, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in, the, in the two pieces of um, federal headship that Adam worked for you and he got you condemnation and judgment. And when Jesus did his work for his people, it resulted in justification. That's one of the dissimilarities. Um, a second dissimilarity, which I think is an interesting um, in verses 16 and 17, that the the condemnation uh, that um, became ours was the result of one sin. But notice what is said um, in verse 16, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. That is, um, condemnation was brought on by one offense versus a justification uh, of not only one offense, but many offenses. That is, one offense led to um, condemnation and judgment, but this one work of Christ in in justification has led to the forgiveness of many sins. Um, In fact, ladies and gentlemen, even the word many almost is misleading. Uh, because there's the, the comparison is between the one and the numerous sins covered by the work of what Jesus Christ has done. Um, there are um, the, the sentence of condemnation that passed on all men was for one offense, whereas we are justified by Christ from many offenses. That's that's another dissimilarity. Um, I cannot outsin the grace of God. One transgression brought on death, but the death of Christ brought on the deliverance from thousands of transgressions. Now, there's a third dissimilarity that I want to point you to, but before I do that, I want to take a little bit of an aside because it's um, one of the ways in theological circles where a good definition is found concerning justification is by comparing it to condemnation. Let me me try to make that clearer. When you set out to try and define uh, justification, one of the things that is often helpful is is to define it by way of negation. That is, to define it by way of what it isn't. And when you find this comparison between justification and condemnation, as you find here in Romans 5, it creates for us an opportunity to interpret the character of justification. Um, here, here's, I think this will become clearer as, as you see what I mean. Take your Bibles. 
and find, if you will, Deuteronomy chapter 25, the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 25. Now, both of these terms are forensic terms. That is, they're terms that are to be found and used in the courtroom. They are opposites. So if you can learn what one of them is, then you will, you will be helped in your understanding of what the other is. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now there's those two terms again. And you find them, by the way, at another place in Proverbs 17. Same kind of statement. But that the... Um, um, they're in a courtroom where they are to be judged, and one is judged righteous, or is, uh, is, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. What has been done to them, ladies and gentlemen? That is, try to import yourself into a, uh, into a courtroom setting, and the wicked is condemned. What has been done to him? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the, the point that is, that is so important to understand is that justification must never be thought of in terms of a condition. Justification does not make you holy. If you condemn the wicked, what have you done to his character? You've done nothing. There are a lot of innocent men who have been condemned as wicked when in fact they themselves were righteous people. Classic illustration. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think he died. He was hung four months before the Allies liberated uh, Berlin. But there was a righteous man condemned as wicked. Condemnation says nothing about one's character. It simply says something about one's status before the law. And so, when you justify the righteous, neither is that a statement about your character. It is a statement about your status before the law of God. What, what I'm saying, guys, is when you find these two things compared, you can learn something about justification by learning something about condemnation. You condemn the wicked and you justify the righteous. And you do the same thing to them. You have not done anything um, uh, in terms of their character or their condition. Justification does not make you holy and condemnation does not make you wicked. But uh, justification is simply that declarative act on the part of God where he pronounces you or declares you to be in a certain status in terms of the law. Just, guys, uh, I know you don't think that's, I mean, maybe perhaps you don't see the importance of that, but I'll tell you, in, in the whole Protestant Reformation, that was a huge debate between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism stating that to be justified was to be made holy. And so that we, we, we took on a constitutive, uh, uh, that is, 
It, we were constituted righteous. We were made righteous. Well, uh, guys, um, if that is so, why is there so many Christians stealing, uh, dealing with so much repetitive sin? I'm sorry we're dealing with repetitive sin, but we are. But justification does not make you holy. Justification simply pronounces you in a certain status in relationship to the law. Now, uh, that was just somewhat of an aside that I think you can learn from this passage as well. Um, Verse 17. There's one other dissimilarity between the work of Christ and the work of Adam. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Here's what death, excuse me, here's what sin produced. Death reigned. Here's what Christ produced. Life reigned. And you notice those two different words, death reigned, will reign in life. By the way, you'll notice um, much more those who receive. That is, there is a reference to, uh, this doesn't come automatically. If you're going to reign in life, uh, it must be something received. That gift is received, certainly. But that's, that's not my point. The difference between these two things is one means the reigning of death. The other means the reigning of life. You know, guys... Um, we could spend an awfully long time talking about the, the reign of death. Um, <laughs> um, I, um, I heard uh, just recently that last year alone that $10.1 billion was spent on Prozac. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not opposed to Prozac. I think when people go through stressful times, and um, uh, it's a it's a good help to get you over a, a, a uh, get you through a period temporarily. I'm not I'm not saying anything pejorative against that drug, but I am saying it is an indication that death reigns. How, you know, I don't have statistics on this, but how much money do you think is spent on cosmetic surgery? How much money do you think is spent on trying to uh, get your cholesterol down? Because we live in a culture where death reigns. And, and not just the fact that life ends in a funeral. Death reigns. I want to read you something that I, I just thought was a good illustration of death reigning. And it's, it's somewhat lengthy, but I think you'll find it enjoyable if you'll stay with me. Listen to this. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy it less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts but more problems, more medicine but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, Spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry too quickly, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too seldom, watch TV too much, and pray too little. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. 
We've added years to our life, but not life to our years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but have trouble crossing the street to meet the new neighbor. We've conquered outer space, but not inner space. We've done larger things, but not better things. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted the soul. We've split the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We have higher incomes, but lower morals. We have more food, but less appeasement. We build more computers to hold more information, to produce more copies than ever, but have less communication. We've become long on quantity, but short on quality. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion, tall men and short character, steep profits and shallow relationships. These are the times of world peace, but domestic warfare, more leisure, but less fun, more kinds of food, but less nutrition. These are the days of two incomes, but more divorce, of fancier houses, but broken homes. These are the days of quick trips, disposable diapers, throwaway of morality, one-night stands, overweight bodies. It is a time when there is much in the show window and nothing in the stock room. You know, uh, that, that's, that's a word merchant that, that put that together, but isn't there some truth in that? A lot in the showroom. Excuse me, a lot in the store window, but little in the stock room. There's a lot on the outside, but very little on the inside. That, like my friends, is the reign of death. And I say to you, the further that we move away from everything that is contained and described as truth in this book, the reign of death gets darker. I am... Um, I appreciate your emails to me, ladies and gentlemen, and I, I hope you don't ever get upset with me because I don't reply. Uh, I get my share of emails, and um, uh, I avoid, I mean, somebody told me at Stephanie the other day, if you, if you don't want 47 emails, then don't do that. So I, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but I got an email from a guy who is a traveling salesman, and they're, mem- well, they're not members of this, or have they joined? I don't think they've joined yet. Precious little couple. Precious couple. And uh, he has a very responsible job, flies all over the world. Um, um, I mean, he was on his way to India, I think, uh, China or someplace like that. But anyway, he represents a medical pharmaceutical uh, company. What's that big thing here in town? That uh, No, I think it's the other one. Sophomoreanic? Is, what, is, what does they do? Is that medical? I think it's Sophomoreanic. He anyway, flies all over the world, and, and so he's emailing me, and um, he said, I, you know, Jimmy, I know you've told me that you don't type well. Uh, and see, that's my problem with him, replying to your emails. I, you know, it's... And, and I, I, I replied with my longest email ever today. I mean, it was, it, when it gets to him, it's probably going to cover the whole screen, which is a... And then, and, and at one time, I was going back to, you know, to correct my mistakes in the thing, and I did something, and it and it blewed this word. You know, I was just trying to I was just trying to correct one little word, and I blewed the thing. And I said, Oh, I didn't want to do that. So I came over and I, I took the little cursor and I, and I hit the punch the little thing, and the whole thing disappeared. <laughs> My longest email ever. And so I ran into Brent's office and I said, Brent, would you come help me, please? Please, that's in there. That's got to be in there somewhere. Please, would you please find it? And um, he said, Well, just check with drafts. And so I opened up drafts, and of course there it was. So, but the, but the point is, this young man is asking questions of, because he's mingling. He's mingling with um, people from every walk of life. This little guy was raised in South, well, in Mississippi, 
And uh, he said, it was real easy for me to believe in Jesus, but it's so hard for me to believe that all these people who are really nice people are going to go to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. And that, and that, and that. I mean, it was just one question, and he was giving me, he, gave, he listed for me three scenarios of um, here's a man who's 65 years old and, and beat his wife all his life and all of a sudden he, uh, he loses his wife to cancer and, and he gets very, very sorry and, and um, repents of his sin and he's going to go to heaven, but this man who's just been, he's a, he's a Hindu and he's been very, very nice and da 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 on and on and on. And, and, and does that confuse you too? That is a hard truth, ladies and gentlemen. It, you know, there's a, there's a portion of the scriptures that is called the hard sayings of Jesus. Well, one of the hardest of the hard sayings of Jesus is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And I remember as a young Christian, struggling with that. I went to school, as you know, on a baseball scholarship, and I lived across the, the, the hall from a golf team, and there was a guy on the golf team who was Jewish. And I didn't have a car, and he's about the only one on that hall that had a car. He was much nicer than I was. He was much nicer. He loaned me his car <laughs> when I had a date. He was just a nice guy. Then I become a Christian. And I know that guy's nicer than I am. He had a little, a yellow Camaro. And um, he was just a nice, and, and I struggled with that. And this young man is struggling. And so I commenced to try and answer some of his struggles about absolutes and about truth and about this and that and the other. And on and on and on and on and on. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, all I'm saying is, at the bottom of my email, I said, Joe, that's not his name. I said, the only thing that concerns me about your questions is, I, you know, I can answer, I mean, your questions are good questions. I love the privilege of answering. But the only thing that concerns me is that I see that you're now being affected by pluralism, by relativism. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, shame on you. You ought to know what pluralism and relativism is. Relativism, of course, is that there's no truth and, you know, but he's beginning to think, you know, these nice, nice people. And so what he is doing is he's beginning to evaluate his circumstances through his experiences. That is, I am going to arrive at a posture of truth because I experienced a certain thing on an airplane on my way to India. And so because this is a nice man and he's a Hindu and he says nice things and he's good to his wife and he's good to his family, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, then I will develop this position, this, this conviction about what the truth is. And so I try to suggest to him, you cannot do that. It is the truth that has to give you your experience, not your experience give you the truth. All I'm saying for you, ladies and gentlemen, is simply this. The more you move away from a commitment to this book and the truth contained therein, the death of the, the reign of death spreads and engulfs us. And so we're all mushy thinkers. You know, guys, I would much rather stand up here and teach you something about anxiety. I've had my share. And I bet you'd like it more too. And I bet you we'd have more people. If I just week after week would come in here and give you something about how to manage stress and how to give you new sexual techniques. Or how to improve your marriage or how to do this and how to do the other. But no, 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 no. We got a way through Romans 5 that Dr. Young doesn't even understand. I, I kind of understand. <laughs> but gang... You may not know this, 
But it is far more important that you grasp firmly the essence of the gospel than it is for you to know how to improve your marriage. Why? Because of the reign of death. Versus something that Jesus has brought along that he calls the reign of life. You and I, ladies and gentlemen, because of his work are free from the dominion of sin. We are free from the dominion of death. And we, according to this text in verse 17, um, for by one offense, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Those who receive are given the righteousness of Christ. And that's very important, ladies and gentlemen. Very, very important. Let me do this and we'll quit. It's very, very important that you get the gift of righteousness. If you, if you can find real quick, because I, I was going to spend some time, we don't have time. Um, Matthew 22. It's this parable about the wedding feast. You know, there's several parables in the New Testament about the wedding feast. And they're all, they all have a little bit of difference here and there. And by the way, um, parables are, are pretty tough things to interpret. They're, they're not as easy as you might think. Um, and, um, well, I won't go into that. But this is the one... Um, uh, they couldn't get the banquet hall filled up, and so finally he says in verse 9, Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. And then in verse 11, But when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how'd you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the servants, Mind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called. If you were chosen. Ladies and gentlemen, we are told in Romans 5 that as a result of Jesus Christ, as those, uh, as we are told in verse 17, who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Very important. You better have that on. You better have that righteousness on when you go to this banquet. Because if you try to appear at this banquet without that righteousness on, you're going to be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very important because it will determine where you spend eternity. The reign of death and the reign of life. Let's quit. Our Father, I do thank you for the, the scriptures that enable us to grapple with you and even though our minds are uh, finite and Yours is not, and and so we walk away from your word sometimes thinking, oh, well, I got a little of that, but I didn't get everything, and uh, perhaps we never will, Lord, but it is fun, it is good, it is right that we uh, spend time trying to better understand you, and I pray that your people will um, let the base of their souls know that it's so urgent that we have a solid foundation underneath us because the world gets darker with the passage of each day. And uh, that darkness is going to shake us to the very core of our being, just like it's shaking this poor little brother on his way to India. I pray that you guard him, that you'll guard uh, 
us. Guard our people, Father, as they head off on vacation in this uh, upcoming spring break week. Keep them safe. Give them a refreshment in uh, their, their vacation and bring them back to us safely. But thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of eternal life. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.